This is reality, Greg. This is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Hey everybody, welcome to Seen and Heard. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the podcast where we normally go through the sight and sound top 100 greatest films of all time list. But today we have a very special episode. This week, of course, we're doing E.T., the extraterrestrial. You may have heard of it. In addition to this uh, being a personal prints episode, which is where we veer off the list to explore films that were formative to us, that are special to us, films that we love. Um, In addition to that, we also have a special guest joining us in the second half of our episode. We'll be joined by Robert McNaughton, who played Michael in the film. Yeah, and we're so excited to speak to Robert. And it's really great because we both chose E.T. It's an, it's a movie that's extremely important to both of us. So this is a shared personal print. Oh, isn't that so sweet when that happens? So lovely. <laughs> And what a movie. What a movie. What a picture. But uh, before gushing too much, manically... Let's uh, just get into it. This is E.T., the extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial was released in 1982. It was directed by Steven Spielberg with a screenplay by Melissa Matheson. Cinematography by Alan Davio. E.T. is the beloved tale of a suburban boy, Elliot, who finds an alien creature who was left behind by his UFO during an excursion to Earth. Elliot takes him home, sharing the secret with his older brother Michael and his little sister Gertie. Eventually, it becomes clear that E.T. and Elliot have an emotional bond that manifests itself physically. When E.T. longs to return to his planet, Elliot helps him make a satellite. However, the longer E.T. spends on the Earth, the weaker he becomes. The government eventually finds out the family is hiding E.T. and infiltrate their household, studying the dying E.T. until he is so worn out that he apparently passes away. (laughs) However, as Elliot tells E.T. he loves him, his heart is reawakened, and a chase to the spaceship that has come to pick him up begins. Finally, Elliot and his siblings say goodbye to the kindly extraterrestrial and watch his ship start its journey back to the place he cannot shut up about the entire movie, home. The film stars Henry Thomas as Elliot, Robert McNaughton as Michael, Drew Barrymore as Gertie, Dee Wallace as their mother Mary, and Peter Coyote as Keys, the government agent. Soft-hearted government Soft-hearted, agent. Soft-hearted, <laughs> yes, who is seeking out E.T. And although uncredited, I feel we should give credit where credit is due. Pat Welsh provided the voice of E.T. And 
fun fact, she was only paid $380. Really? Yeah, she did nine hours of work, apparently. Oh, okay. She was just an old woman who smoked like two packs of cigarettes a day and had the perfect voice. And It's like yeah. Mercedes McCambridge is the voice of uh, Reagan in The Exorcist, which you have not seen, <laughs> so you don't know too what scary. I'm talking about. Too scary, too scary. Um, so Pat Welsh, so it was her voice mixed with the sounds of many animals, uh, different creatures. Also, apparently Deborah Winger also provided some voice talent. Do you know about this like about weird that. rumor? Yeah. But it's true. And then she, I watched this clip of her recently on, I think it was Andy Cohen and she was being super mysterious about it. Like it's After very all these weird. Years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's super weird. The film premiered at Cannes in May. Uh, and it was released on June 11, 1982. So it did just celebrate its 40th anniversary. Yeah, happy birthday, E.T. I know. And it held the record for highest grossing film of all time for 11 years until it was beat by none other than Jurassic Park. Oh, was it Jurassic Park? Yes. <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure how long Jurassic Park held the record, but E.T. held it for 11 years. There was a re-release in 2002 for the 20th anniversary. And it included this... Basically, this extended version uh, was yes. created for the occasion. And Steven Spielberg was able to modify certain shots with CGI. He included some deleted scenes. The guns in the end of the government agents were replaced with walkie-talkies. Yeah. The terrorist line changes to something more PG. The line where Michael says he's dressing he's up going as a terrorist. Up. Yeah. Yeah. God, what did it change to? Did I, you ever see that version? So I'll get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but one deleted scene that wasn't included in that version is a scene where Harrison Ford plays Elliot's principal. Mm-hmm. And you don't see him, you don't see his face, but it's his voice. Anyway, it wasn't included in that, which is like, okay, if you're going to give us scene, like a version with the deleted scenes, why not include Harrison <laughs> Ford? Come on. You can find it on YouTube, yeah. But it is out of circulate out of circulation. To Spielberg's credit, I think because this was in the wake of George Lucas' uh, really messing up a lot of his <laughs> his movies, his Star Wars movies in 1997 did a bunch of those special editions, which yeah. are controversial to this yeah. day. Yeah. And I think Spielberg got in on that. And yeah, I kind of, I think, made a lot of mistakes. But to Spielberg's credit, he realized he made the mistakes. And it's out of circulation. And has since taken it away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so just really quick, I have not, I don't think I've ever seen that version, but I remember... That when I used to watch Shrek, the VHS started with a trailer for, or no, it was The Grinch. I'm sorry. It was The oh, Grinch. Yeah, make sure you I remember. Right. No, I really do. <laughs> Every time I watched The Grinch, the trailer for the 20th anniversary edition would always come up. And I remember a really weird looking CGI ET, yeah. like screaming. And I was like, ew. <laughs> yeah. It really scared me. I did not like it. Yeah. But I only ever saw the trailer. Have you ever seen the 20th yeah. anniversary edition? Yeah, yeah. How is it? Because I owned that edition. Oh, you did. And But to Spielberg's credit, because George Lucas, what he did with Star Wars, he gave you, you can only watch his new versions. You can't even watch the original Star Wars, which is, it's again, it's still a, a topic to this day. But Spielberg, at least, when he did his new version on one disc, like had his new version and the other disc had the old version. Okay. So he wasn't like withholding the original yeah. cut. Yeah, yeah. But I have seen that one once or twice, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe my VHS was just old. It must have been. But wait, it came out in 92. When? How old was my VHS? Wait, what came out in 92? The 20th anniversary. No, 02. Oh, that's right. Okay, no, I'm good. I had an older VHS. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and this movie on the AFI list is number 24. And John Williams' score 
is number 14 in their list of the 25 greatest film scores of all time. Could probably be higher than that, I would think. Higher than 14? Yeah. 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 So well, that's what I got for specs. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, a little history, I guess, behind the movie is uh, Spielberg. At, so he at this point, he was writing high. Like, of course, um, you know, he did stuff. He started his directorial career in the late 60s on the Rod Serling TV show, The Night Gallery. And then just started to go into TV movies. So was, uh, he did Duel in the early 70s. He did the Sugarland Express. And then, of course, everyone knows his first major film, his breakthrough film was Jaws in 1975. Uh, which, of course, invented the summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, in 77, he came back with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm-hmm. which was a different film from Jaws. Jaws was this big sort of crowd pleaser, and Close Encounters was a little more personal. It was a little weirder. It was a little Super. darker. Um, so you had that, and then, of course, he followed that up with 1941, uh, I haven't seen that. Which I saw when I was a kid, because actually my grandpa was a big fan of it. But it was a disaster. It was, is it really? It was a complete disaster, yeah. What is it? I know it's some sort of like World War II It's satire? a World War II, yeah, that's exactly what oh. it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, anyway, it was this huge overblown, like over budget, did terribly at the box office. No one thought it was like that particularly funny. So it was a huge crash and burn mm-hmm. for Spielberg. So just after that, in 1981, Spielberg made a little movie, maybe you've heard of it, called Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was intended to get himself back on track because it was a cheap movie that he could make very quickly. You know, whereas with Close Encounters in 1941, he spent a lot of time and effort and they were very painstakingly made. With Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was a run and gun thing and it was a smaller budget than his the last couple movies. And Do you know what the budget was? I don't know the exact budget, but it was considerably smaller and again, the whole thing was let's shoot fast. Let's get yeah. let's shoot under budget. Let's get under schedule. Let's just get a movie made. Mm-hmm. And of course, it becomes the Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. <laughs> so coming off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, he happens to make this film, which started as a film based on his childhood. And it was yeah. originally called A Boy's Life. Mm-hmm. And because he came from a broken home, his parents were divorced, divorced when he was young. And... That's what this was. So he actually enlisted um, uh, the help of Melissa Matheson. Uh, so when he was making Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, she was married to Harrison Ford at the time, and he gave this. He gave, he told he pitched the idea for ET to Harrison Ford and like, do you think Melissa would be interested in in writing this? Mm-hmm. Melissa said no. She turned it down <laughs> originally, which I'm sure put Harrison Ford in a weird spot because yeah. <laughs> he's in the movie. He's yeah. in Raiders. They're like filming it. Yeah. Anyway, she eventually writes it. Of course, it's this beautiful, concise script. And again, I think the magic of this script is she's the singular. She, although it's Spielberg's movie, right? Like she was the sole author on the script, yeah. and I think it has a very personal. Like some movies are are written by a million people. Yeah. And especially, this, especially like blockbusters. Yeah, I feel like. well, especially today. <laughs> oh God. Um, but this movie has a very pared down mm-hmm. distinctive feel mm-hmm. that feels mm-hmm. like it was written mm-hmm. by one person um so that's that's how it came about and of course yeah if it was a huge success i don't need to tell you <laughs> <laughs> um isn't it so weird that it's so different from close encounters oh yeah like so different well that's i think that's the key to it of course okay so before we get too deep into this by the way do you want to know the other steven spielberg movies that are on the afi list is it raiders i will tell you it is et actually 
Let me. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> it is E.T., Schindler, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Saving Private Ryan. Uh, yeah. But Close Encounters used to be in place of Saving Private Ryan. It was replaced with Saving Private Ryan. I don't know why. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. Okay. Anyway, those were the movies. What are your initial thoughts? <clears throat> initial thoughts. So, who knows the first time I saw this movie. I know! <laughs> so, I can't give you a pure initial thoughts. You can't give me little Greg's initial thoughts because I don't, the first time you saw it? <laughs> I don't remember the first time. I do know uh, my parents' first date was to see this movie. How when it cute! Out. Um, I mean, they're no longer together, but... <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> it's, it's uh, I mean, look, I'll, I'll say this. When I was a kid, we had this on VHS... It was too powerful for me. Yeah, it like, is. Because it is it is very powerful and it's very, it's both like euphoric and really tragic. And as a kid, I like almost couldn't and handle scary. it. And scary. Yeah, and scary. And but like I couldn't quite handle it as a kid. Like I liked it and we'd watch it occasionally, but it was just like too powerful. That's so interesting. Me too. It wasn't like The Grinch or Shrek that I would just watch on repeat because I knew even when you're young, you know that this is something deep anyway yeah exactly it is no there's real emotion in here there's heartbreak and so as a kid i didn't this wasn't on repeat but i really respected the movie but it did kind of scare me and it did overwhelm me so it wasn't until i was teens probably that i like i probably hadn't seen it in 10 years and i put it on and i was like whoa (laughs) you know i'd seen some movies at, at this point i'd seen some you know i'd gone outside i'd started watching international movies and stuff and I came back around to ET, and I the first thing I thought was I was completely bowled over by how what a monumental work it is, I think, and how no blockbusters feel like this. Like mm-hmm. it's tender, it's patient, it's small in scale, it's it's really deeply felt. Like I think most modern blockbusters would be afraid to like pace themselves this slowly. They'd be afraid that people would lose interest. Of course. Um, so yeah, when I was a teenager and I, I rewatched it, I was completely blown away by it. And of course, I mean, some of the nat- the most natural child acting you've ever seen in a movie. It's incredible. And also the, the John Williams score, which is truly, yeah. I mean, you can say this about sometimes we might've said this before, but this is truly like one of the top five movie scores Easily ever for me because it is the film and it does elevate the film to like opera mm-hmm. and especially that final i'm bike. getting chills i'm getting chills <laughs> yeah, i'm not I'm, kidding the music does so much yeah. and of course like the i mean throughout the whole film but especially in the climactic bike chase i mean it, it's operatic it is it's, it is it's unlike anything i mean talk about the perfect union of sight and sound exactly. that's it and it's funny i mean spielberg and john williams were such a team at this point and they have been for most of their careers but uh, the year again, I'm gonna probably bring up Raiders too much, but you know, Raiders before this, the year before this, also had these operatic sequences. Like, there's a famous truck chase in the mm-hmm. desert in that scene, which is I still think is like the greatest action scene of all time. But again, it's it becomes operatic with John Williams' score. It's mm-hmm. like a movement, yeah, and it's not just like music peppered in there to like Mm-mm. spice it up. Like it is opera. Jurassic Park too. Yeah, Jurassic Park, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I mean. What can I say about this? Now? It's a masterpiece. And again, it's just one of those beautiful movies that bridges the gap between like it's kind of an art film. Oh yeah. It's a very personal, deeply felt, like kind of art film in the way yes. that it's interested in it's so interested in emotions and the way it's put together is like pretty much flawless. Yeah. Like 
It's so, it just feels like there's such a sure hand behind it, but it still delivers these big emotional moments and thrills with the bike mm-hmm. chase stuff. And yeah, I mean, I think it's just a a masterpiece of the highest order. It really <laughs> is. Yeah. Truly. So what about you? My initial thoughts are really hard to describe because again, like you, I don't know what little me thought when I first watched it, but I, similar to you, it was... It's the it when I was a kid it was the final frontier for me like anything more was too scary like it was that one it was a very special watch it wasn't on repeat yeah um but right now I will say like I watched it um when the pandemic started my mom and my brother and I watched it and I hadn't seen it for years and it was so great but this last time that I watched it just a few days ago I wanted it to be a family movie night but everyone was busy. And I realized when I started, when I pressed play, I was like, wow, this is my first time watching E.T. alone. And it made me so sad. <laughs> it made everything more sad. I was 10 times as emotional. And I can't tell if I liked it or not. I can't tell if I, if I liked the experience of watching it alone. I don't think I did. I think at the end it made me so sad. Um... So that's interesting. That's something to say about the movie. It's like, and I'm not like that. I can watch any movie alone. But just something about this, watching it alone made me extremely lonely. Extremely lonely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you get that big emotional payoff at the end. Like it's, it's... Of course. No, the movie is a 10 out of 10 masterpiece. Yeah. Obviously. But I'm just saying, something about watching it alone is very lonely and sad. <laughs> and it was my first time, you know? And we talk about this a lot. Like, my parents were really strict. I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies, R movies. I was strictly allowed to watch kids' movies. But they did it right in that they were always good kids' movies. And I talk about this all the time because it's such an important part of my movie upbringing. Like, formative movies for me were children and family movies. And it matters that those were good because... You should never belittle the movies you grew up with. That's where the love came from, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, for me, yeah, I was only watching children's and kids' movies, but it says something about them that that's... Watching those, my love of movies was born. And this is definitely, like, at the top of the list of, like, (laughs) good family movies. Yeah. I talked about Spirit in our Wild Bunch uh, episode. Like, I talk about Shrek all the time, Sound of Music, the original Charlotte's Web. A few months ago, I had this, like, resurgence of passion for the original 70s cartoon Charlotte's Web. Because they don't make children's movies like that anymore. And what kind of filmmakers are the movies, the children's movies that kids are watching now, what kind of filmmakers are those going to create? I thought about that. I prefer the term family film. Because something like like all those you just mentioned, it's literally for everyone. Yes, they're like like high concept. A children's movie is like Babe. Sorry, Babe. I also wanted to throw in there because that was huge for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's so nice to think about that many of those are masterpieces. Like it's, yes. I, I loved it. And, um, yeah. So, so yeah. wait, let me rewind a bit. So yeah. So like, what are the children's movies today? What kind of filmmakers are those going to make? I started thinking about that, uh-huh. which is sad. <laughs> it's bleak. And then I found this really <laughs> sweet Roger Ebert 
review of the film. So he has a few reviews. He has like his original review. He he reviewed it a few times. He reviewed it for the 20th anniversary. And then I found another one on his website that is written as a letter to his grandkids. And it's about the first time that he watched it with them. It's like, I came over last weekend and we put on E.T. and you were saying this and you were saying that. And like, but it's written as a review. It's really sweet. Aww. You should read it. It's really, really sweet. Here's what he said. I love this quote. E.T. the Extraterrestrial is a movie like The Wizard of Oz that you can grow up with and grow old with and it won't let you down. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I will say because I feel like this doesn't need to be said, but I need to say it. Obviously, everyone from our generation and younger who is into film has, I think, Steven Spielberg to thank. Um, I mean, I would not be where I am in terms of my my cinephilia, yeah. my my where movies are my life if it yeah. wasn't for Spielberg. Because yeah. again, I saw these at such an impressionable age, and these movies meant the world to me. Mm-hmm. E.T., the Indiana Jones movies, Jaws, Jurassic Park, th- that was my whole world. Yeah, and so those were my earliest. Again, you you kind of grew up on Disney movies and stuff too, which were great. But it was the Spielberg movies that made me want to be a filmmaker, made me want to, you know, push me over the edge in terms of like, this is my life. Yeah. And so words cannot even express the the gratitude I have towards Spielberg, mm-hmm. it, just in terms of these movies mean the world to me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. of course, that's everyone our age and younger and, and the generation before us too will say the same thing. And people talk about the first time they saw Star Wars and stuff. But yeah, the Spielberg films are, that's, cinema like yeah. that is that is where it came from that is ground zero and if it was not for spielberg who knows where i'd be Aww. and here's the thing what's so lovely about spielberg and his prime is that you know people always talk about like high concept movies and they're for everyone but i truly believe that his high concept movies are really universal like they're not even catered to a specific member of the family like in any way, shape, or form mm-hmm. and they still work so perfectly there's magic there do you know what why I think his high concept stuff works so well. Why? Because it's simple. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people today forget. Yeah. I think today a lot of high concept stuff tends to be very complicated. Yeah. And you kind of get lost in that. Yeah. Or like overly mysterious or something. And yeah. Spielberg just, again, it's it's perfectly evident in, in something like E.T. Where it's just like, it's a simple story. Yeah. You get involved in so, the characters. So yeah. yeah. So that's my first point really is that the structure at the heart of the movie is key to the success of the entire movie. It's beautiful. It is. It really is. Like, let's make a sci-fi movie about kids. Uh, Let's make a sci-fi movie about real people and not quite even people, like real kids and how they interact and how they talk to each other and how the baby is going to blabber no matter what. Like, she's (laughs) going to tell mom and how the older brother plays Dungeons and Dragons with his friends and they bully the younger one. Like, it's just... It's so real and it's so simple. Yeah. Well, it's it's evident in the film's first frames that you are under the, the spell of a master because the f- opening forest shots, it's just, again, the pacing, the way that they're shot, the score, like it's just, it's so evident from the first minute that this is like And you know what amazing. I love? I even love before we cut to the forest because it's like, it's like ominous yes. noises and it says E.T. and you're kind of scared, but then- it changes to the forest and it's John Williams and it's beautiful. So yes. it's, from the start, it's showing you that this is going to be like kind of scary, but also lovely. Yes. 
Yes, it's just a big warm hug of a movie. And I think there are so few movies that do this so well. It is, but also the fear is important. Right, of course. It is yeah. so important to the movie. And we talk about it, right? We, we ta- talk me and this, yeah. Greg and I have talked about how we want our kids to be kind of scared. It's good <laughs> for you. It's good for you. Yes. Were you scared as a child? Yes. I was too. I was a very He's weird looking. Child. Yes. He is. Yeah. But it didn't. E.T. didn't terrify me. Like, I have some friends who now still can't watch E.T. because it, like, brings up some childhood fear that they had some deep-seated thing. I, you know, I wasn't that afraid of E.T. But, like, yeah, yeah, of course, you're supposed to be a little scared. He's so alien. He's scary only when he screams. Like, when I was a child, I couldn't watch, like, that moment in the fort when he discovers him. Uh, that was like really scary <laughs> in the wheat field when they both scream and i just like covered my ears and i'm like no 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 like yeah but it's important to the movie it's I not think. a wheat field it's like some reeds yeah exactly but really no. the adults are the villains if you think about it I and mean, here's the thing Here- except mom because she's like well, of central. course and keys keys well, no at the end he's there yeah. watching the spaceship yeah. take off he's rooting for elliot the whole time and that whole speech he gives to elliot at the end i think is very sincere i don't think he's just telling elliot something he wants to hear to calm him down i think when he says like i'm glad he found you like that makes me want to cry that was really sweet actually <laughs> and he's there at the end when the spaceship's taking off he's not going yeah. after et to like bring him back this might be a good time to talk about the lighting because i feel like the lighting really helps with the fear oh factor okay <laughs> Yes. So interestingly about this movie, Spielberg has said this before, where like you shouldn't feel the cinematography of a movie. Well, not not that you shouldn't feel it, but you shouldn't be aware of a film's cinematography because he thinks then you get caught up in the look of the movie Mm -hmm, and you're not mm -hmm, invested in it. mm -hmm. I think so. That's true in Jaws. That's true in Close Encounters. That's Mm -hmm. true in the Indiana Jones movies. I think in the case of this He's almost breaking his own rules because it has a very dreamlike, composed look to it. But I think it serves the movie really well. Yeah, it creates mystery. I mean, I love all the lamps in his room and even the swinging lamp the first time he brings him home. It's... It's all great. the soft lights and the, in the yeah when the closet the mist. come on oh my yeah God. it's just such, such a warm looking film but going back to like really really like the heart of the story and the fact that it is in the perspective of the kids and the alien like yeah. it's it's brilliant it's like yeah let's have that small structure and on top of it let's not break the perspective of the people whose movie this is yeah and that lens, like, that's the reason it succeeds. It, it's because it's in their point of view. It's children and an alien who doesn't speak English. So you don't need techno babble. You don't need details. You don't need anything. That's the genius of, honestly, so Spielberg has an alien trilogy, right, that started with Close Encounters, continued through E.T., and concluded in War of the Worlds. Each movie is a completely different take. Mm-hmm. And each film, the protagonist is an everyman. Yeah. It's a little boy, it's yeah. a confused father, yeah. you know, it's an absent father. And I think that's the genius. It's not some scientist, it's not like a government official, it's not like it, you're seeing yeah. this from an everyday perspective. And I think that's the key. Yes. So you don't get all that like unneeded stuff. But the problem with Close Encounters for me is it does have that really large scale like side story. Oh yeah. Like sure. Francois Truffaut. <laughs> Truffaut, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, um, I think I think E.T. is a better yeah, film than yeah, Close Encounters. Of course, of course. But yeah, and you don't see the adults from the waist up. It's until the end. Until the but, end. Yeah. And then did you know those doctors are real USC doctors? He went to just go like he just recruited a bunch of USC doctors oh, to I just like blabber. Like, okay, we need to do this, this, but like actual medical talk. It works. So works so good. Yeah. It works really, really good. You know what's funny though? And this is related to like perspective. 
I didn't realize until this time around how ridiculous it is that like two guys in full on astronaut gear break into their home. Well, it makes it so much more cinematic, doesn't it? Why are they in astronaut suits? They're on Earth. Because they don't know what they're in. I don't know. Why aren't they just like hazmat suits? I don't know. Yeah. Why are they wearing (laughs) astronaut suits? Why don't they give the family protective gear after they've infiltrated their home? (laughs) Like they're the only, the family's the only one without like masks on. So here's my kind of answer. Which is fine. I'm not, I'm not mad at it. It's just like, it is that like childhood mystery thing. Yes. This is my take on this. And I think this is kind of true for most Spielberg stuff. He doesn't cut on logic he cuts on emotion yes and i think again because this is a film from the perspective mm -hmm, of children mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're just these bigger than life figures exactly it makes it more poetic exactly it does and another one like you said he cuts on emotion like when elliot comes home after halloween and he's sick and she closes the door and he's just there Elliot. yeah after the cops have been looking for him like how did they not hear him come in the house but again it's (laughs) It's great it's what it works i'm not complaining like how did et know how to open a beer can it doesn't matter it doesn't matter exactly how did et learn how to talk so fast again it doesn't matter yeah he's watching tv again it's it's like not a if you were to go through this you're like one of those grumpy guys who like were like hmm, that doesn't make you mean one of the letterbox people yeah (laughs) then yeah sure you could pick out a million things but again you're missing the point of the film it's a I agree. It's a fairy tale. I agree. It, add, it And the fact that it's in their perspective, it's more wonder, more danger, more mystery, just by the fact that it's, yeah. I, I could especially see someone having a problem with the scene where Elliot's at school and he re- reenacts. Quiet man? He reenacts, yeah. <laughs> Wait, is that the quiet man? Yeah. With John Wayne? Yeah. Oh, shoot. The wind, the windy door. He opens oh, you're it. right. I don't know why I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just like, does that make any sense? No, but no. like- it's it's a great moment. You and know it's what? Perfect. I, That's all yeah, you need. Yeah, but you know what I realized this time around that was really sweet. So like that moment, right? They're about to dissect frogs, and Elliot decides to save all the frogs. But I, I it always like confused me a little bit. I didn't care, but it was just like okay, they're connected. He's talking to him somehow. But really, like ET tells Elliot to save the frogs because he feels how sad Elliot is about the frogs. Mm-hmm. I never noticed that yeah. until this time around. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, and Elliot is such a sweetheart and I love how his dog sleeps on his bottom bunk. Like Harvey. that just tells you everything you need to know about him. He's lonely. He wants companionship. He loves like creatures. It's so Well, does Michael lovely. not sleep on the bottom bunk? That's Harvey's bunk, it seemed like. Or does Michael there's have no his own room? There's no pillows. Yeah, I think Michael has his own room. I don't know. No, think... Greg, there's no pillows, and there's a photo of Harvey, <laughs> and he's just laying on the bed. It seems like it's his bed. But wait, it seems... <laughs> I don't know. It seems like, because again, kids would share, you would, you know, the boys would share a room, because the boys have a room, and then Gertie has a room. And That's, they have that you're adjo- right. Adjoining I didn't think closet. about that. I love that closet so I- much. Yeah, I don't know. It could be. It could just be Harvey's bunk. I don't know. I think it's Harvey's bunk. <laughs> it's all just too cute. This movie's just too cute. Hearts that light up. Come on. I know. Oh it's just too much. Their connection. Their like love for each other. That's a great narrative decision, by the way. You know yeah. what? I mean, it's just it's a movie about empathy. That's it. Yeah. It's feeling someone else's feelings. A stranger who, instead of being afraid, you just feel that what they're feeling. And only a child could have picked up E.T. and done that. Like Key says, I'm glad you found him. Like only a child could do that because they're so pure. It's 
I know. It's too much. I know. It's so funny because child actors are such are so hit and miss. Like a lot of yeah. movies have child performances which are not great or they're like fine. Um, but again, this film it's just on another level. And again, you've probably seen the audition tape for um, Henry Thomas. Oh my first, god! Right? Yeah. Of how it just—it's <laughs> like the gold standard. It's wild. Um, I mean, they're just so natural from the first scene. So natural, and it's just wild. Like you I, believe yeah. them. I'm really real. excited to talk to Robert because I can't wait to hear what it was like for them to like bond and get to know each other because they really feel like siblings. And Drew is so great. I don't think people talk about Drew enough. I think they do. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, she's so good. Her intuition's incredible. Yeah, like she's, talking she's with her mouth cutest. full and just like, <laughs> oh, where's Mexico? I particularly love the way she delivers the line where she's watching the TV. I I don't know what show it is. I don't know if it's like Schoolhouse Rock or what. I think it's just like an educational show. The spelling one. Oh yeah. And then ET says B, and she literally just looks at him and she's like, "You said B," but she says it so naturally yeah. it freaks me out and cute but b is for a boy with a baseball and bat who with one you said b you said b good and so cute uh how about how she calls the mom mary i know I well, they mary. all call her mary yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing that's super real. I was talking a little bit about how they're just so real and they feel so real and they're such a real family. Like like telling your mom at at the point that it becomes like really scary, the way that they tell mom. Like that just felt so natural. Like she's coming up the stairs and he's like, come on, mom. Like I really need to show you something. Like it's just... And Dee Wallace has a lot to do here too because again, that role could have just been sidelined. She's the mom. She's the authority figure. But no. And again, mm-hmm. she's like oblivious for a lot of the movie that E.T. is But there. not for no reason. She's right. going through it. She's going through a really traumatic breakup. Mm-hmm. It seems. It's and fresh. that's why she's so like oblivious. It's not just because she's a bad mom. Yeah. She's not. Yeah. And she has three kids and she's a single mother. Yeah. You know what's so interesting? I always found it funny the way that she reacts to pardon my language, penis breath. Oh my God. Maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot, (laughs) sit down. Yeah, that's amazing. She laughs. Like she doesn't even get mad. And that always freaked me out. I was like, whoa. (laughs) Like, my mom would kill me. Talk about one of the best lines in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I get a laugh every time. It's, yeah. like, always funny. Yeah. I think, too, what, what's so key about her is the way that Spielberg focuses on her in these tiny moments. Like, oh, yeah, sure, a lot of the time. Beautiful tiny moments. Like, when uh, ho- it's Halloween time and mm. she comes home and she's using her, like, wand and her costume to, to put, put out, the, out the, the candles. candles. What about the moment where she gets up off the table after learning dad is in Mexico with Sally? Yes. It's just her from behind in a dark corner corner yes it's great that whole scene the dynamic between the three kids is amazing it really and is the way that michael too tells elliot off of like why don't you think of someone else for a change like mm-hmm. it's just so good and it just feels so real peter pan when she's reading them oh peter my God, pan yeah, peter that's pan. another great moment yeah <laughs> it's funny because he would make hook after this he would make hook yeah you know i love hook 
Yeah, it gets a lot of hate. People, I yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. I've always loved it. I think even he doesn't really like it. Spielberg's really? like, ah, oh, I kind of messed up. That's sad. I don't think it's a mess up. No, I like it. I watched it a lot. In fact, I might have watched it more than E.T. because E.T. was so scary. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, E.T. was more emotionally taxing. It was. <laughs> uh, I have a friend who is completely obsessed with E.T. He's probably the biggest E.T. fan in the world. Mm-hmm. And he has all these cool little props from the movie. Like he has... Remember in the beginning when they're showing the spaceship and there's like those little translucent mushrooms? Yeah. Like he has one of those. Like Where did he screen get it? used from an auction or something. How funny. But yeah, he has all these little bits and pieces. But yeah, he is, uh, as we opened this episode with uh, This is Reality, Greg, it's a line I hear a lot from him to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just classic. Um, don't you love the moment where, this is another good like young actor moment, when Elliot is... Like showing E.T. all the stuff in his room. Oh, my God. It's so natural. He's just like manic. He's like, okay, these are the fish. This is a shark and nothing eats a shark. And then he's showing him his action figures and... Look, fish. The fish eat the fish food. And the shark eats the fish. But nobody eats a shark. See? This is Pez. Candy. So you eat it. You put the candy in here, and then when you lift up the head, candy comes out, and you can eat it. You want some? Just unhinged, like completely just going. It's too good. (laughs) It is. But that's one of my favorite moments. Oh, it's so good. And again, it's just patient. Spielberg's camera is patient. The lighting is kind of dim, like it's coming in through the blinds in the mm-hmm, window. They're kind of mm-hmm, backlit. Mm-hmm. It's it's very shadowy. I think a lot of other filmmakers would be like, oh, you can't really see what's happening here. Let's let's brighten mm-hmm. up this scene. Yeah. Spielberg, again, the right call. It just gives it this mystical quality. Yeah. Real life quality, too. Yeah. You know, kids' yeah. bedrooms aren't always perfectly lit. Yeah. And, oh, and they're this, messy. Amazing scene. There are also other little moments, not just with mom, but just in general. Like, Michael has a few really great little moments. I love when he... After Elliot has told him about E.T., he has to go to school the next day and he's on the bus and every, mm. all the kids are just like hooligans. They're throwing things and then Michael's just sitting there quietly like he's wiser and he knows something. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I love that. It's very introspective. Yeah. Very. And then I love how he goes and sleeps in the closet that E.T. used to stay in. Like the day that he dies, essentially. It's so sweet. I would say in a lesser film, they would make the older brother character kind of like the jock or like the... Yeah. Like the kind of the bad brother. like Yeah. Or like he's kind of a, you know, a jerk yeah. and like... But Michael is such a sweetheart. He really and is. from the beginning, like he teases Elliot a little bit, but yeah. like you can tell the love for his family is in his eyes. Very and sweet. I think it was such a great choice to make Michael this like introspective, thoughtful young boy definitely yeah. and i think it also has to do with the fact that their their parents are splitting up so he probably feels like exactly. super responsible and yes exactly it's so sweet yeah he is the eldest yeah it's it's beautiful another little moment i love it's not michael related but it's just et like wrapped in a blanket reading an abc book <laughs> <laughs> that's like me on a saturday night <laughs> can we just say that the most traumatic image in this movie is et <laughs> oh, at the creek oh, like all gray <laughs> It's so gross. It's so gross. There's like a little cute raccoon there, though. I know. Like, why is he so pale? He's fleshy. Yeah. Like, what happened in those, what, eight hours between the night before 
It's important. That time. It's important to say that the ET creature was designed by Carlo Rambaldi. Yes, who was you know was a special effects wizard, but most notably before this film worked on a little movie called Possession. Um, have you seen that Mm-mm. with Sam Neil, Sam Neil and Isabel Adjiani? Um, it's it's a uh, it could not be more different from ET. It's a very traumatic. Well, because he is a little bit too, but it's a wild movie. But he designed this this monster <laughs> yeah. for the movie. Yeah. So it's just funny to go from that like possession, this gross like tentacly monster to E.T. who's so cute I know. and squishy. So E.T. was played in the scenes where he's walking. It's so there were two little people and one boy who was born without legs, and they would take turns getting in the E.T. suit every time he had to walk. So because E.T. waddles. Yes. And, uh, but then the, whenever, like, his facial expressions were controlled by animatronics. And, uh, yeah, that's another thing I'm looking forward to talking to Robert about. Yeah, me too. We have so many questions. I know. (laughs) Um... So before doing this episode, I did watch a, uh, 4K version of the E.T. Adventure Ride. Oh, my God. So I think I was really young when that closed I don't know. I must have gone on it, but I really don't remember. I want to say it closed anywhere between 04 and 07, hmm. somewhere in there. I th- I don't think it was 07. Because I think the first time I went to Universal Studios was 2002 or 4. Hmm. And it was already the mummy. Hmm. Anyway. I loved that et right i at universal Studios. watched it it's still open in florida and mm-hmm. that is actually the original one so i watched this 4k version of it and it looks great it was so good it looks so good it looks like alice's adventures in wonderland but et yeah yeah and it has like the peter pan ride system so the yeah. track is on the ceiling you're suspended on this bike from the ceiling it looks incredible yeah, it was really magical i remember going on it as a kid and of course the line was this indoor redwood forest it's still like that and then of course you write your name on a card before you get on the ride and I at the end et says your name it was so good what was cool about the ride too is you went to et's planet yeah it's like you don't get to see it in the movie. I'm gonna send you the link. I'm gonna send you the oh, link I've of seen the it ride. Many times. Oh, you have? Yeah, because I remember going on the ride as a kid, but I've seen the videos since just because I miss it. And the, I do not like the mummy ride at all. I think it's, it is trash. I think it's a poor man's Space Mountain. Poor man's Indiana Jones too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those put those two together yeah. and make it like for five cents, and that's the mummy ride. Yep, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, the ET ride was so good. So, it, funnily enough, there's a novel. There, there was a novelization of E.T. Yes. And a sequel. And in the sequel, you go to the Green Planet. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what they based the ride off of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my friend Brian, who is the E.T. fanatic, knows all about it. And apparently, yeah, they almost made a second movie or like there were I'm talks. I'm glad they didn't. He's, he, his thing, I mean, he, he, he always tells me like, oh, I wish they had just made it. Like, I know it wouldn't have been great, but I just want more E.T. Because that's his thing is like he just wants more of what he loves. And I totally get that. And it makes sense. But like there's something so pure about just having E.T. The one film and it's like a masterpiece. Yes. And like that's it. There's yes. no there's no, nothing else. Yeah. One thing about E.T. You can see the far reaching influence of like up to stranger things, you know, like. Well, of course. Yeah. There's the kid in this. I forget the kid's name. It's not Greg. It's one of the other friends. But it's wearing the, exactly like the, the outfit with the, the kid with the curly hair and, wears. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, the hat and everything. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of, this was a whole genre of movie. This kind of started, like, there would be no Goonies with without mm-hmm, E.T. There mm-hmm. would be no Gremlins. There mm-hmm. would be no, like, um, Explorers or stuff yeah. like that. So this was, like, 
a template movie um, for so many reasons. I think so too. And it, like so many trends, like the first is the best. Like, you know, they real. this is uh yeah. Yeah. I think didn't Spielberg produce the Goonies? Oh yeah. He did, right? And Gremlins yeah. and Back to the Future and Yeah. I mean Spielberg in the eighties, seventies and eighties was just like on fire. Nineties too. Oh, of course, yeah. But um, he started here let's talk about Spielberg really quick because I this is what I think happened to him. So he's real obviously uh was very childlike from the beginning and was known for this kind of movie. And I think it could not be more apparent than in E.T., where mm-hmm. he clearly has the mind where he's able to just connect with children and he's still part of that world. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in the 90s, he start, even actually 80s, I think he started to get self-conscious because mm. people were like, oh, you're the guy that makes like family, family movies, movies and stuff. And it's like all fluff. And so he made like The Color Purple. And then a couple years later, he made Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he started to get really aware. And I, yeah. think, I think he almost overcorrected. And again, I like Color Purple. I like Schindler's List. But like, you know, I I wasn't a fan of his last couple, like the post. And I didn't like, even see it. I, I just feel like sometimes. Lincoln? Oh, yeah. I didn't like Lincoln, actually. I like it. But Spielberg had a really great run in like the late 90s, early 2000s with like, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, AI, oh, I love Catch Me if War you of can. the Worlds. Like, let's talk about War of the Worlds really quick because that's the opposite of ET. I actually haven't seen it. Oh, really? It's yeah. good. It's good, but it's like kind of a nightmare. Yeah, like Tom Cruise is this like kind of absent single father, mm-hmm. and stuff starts going down, and then he has to protect them. But like, yeah. the aliens are not friendly in that. Yeah. One. Spoiler alert. And but it's weird because yeah. they're friendly in uh, Close, Encounters. Close Encounters and this. Yeah. I think because Spielberg's such an optimist. Yeah. And I think he wanted to do a film that was then like the opposite, that we were like yeah. the aliens were just here to like wreck stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, on the studio tour at Universal, you see the set from War of the Worlds. That's but, cool. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's worthwhile. Like it's not E.T., but what is? But um, yeah, interesting. Just the three, the Close Encounters, E.T. and War of the Worlds. I'd love to watch those like on the same mm-hmm. day sometime mm-hmm. and just like, it's just interesting. Those are his three alien films. And, and they're so different. They're so different. It is interesting. Even this from Close Encounters are pretty different. I could go on for hours about how much I love this movie, yeah, but we should do. probably do Sight and Sound. Yeah, I guess we do have a whole second part of this episode to do. do. So yes, let's um, do it. So I said this earlier in the episode. I think this moment has uh, this movie has one of the most beautiful m- joinings of Sight and Sound ever. And it, I mean, come on, you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> well, so at first. Both of the bicycle scenes are like immaculate for me. Like those just make me cry. Like just seeing them makes me cry. And then the music. And it's just, and yeah. they work together though. I think it's really, I don't think you could separate the two. Absolutely not. <laughs> so I think my favorite sight is the first time Elliot flies. Oh. It's, what, come wait, on. Because it's night. Again? It's Halloween. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that it's this movie's a, this movie's like a low key Halloween movie though. I like yeah. that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think it's the moment right when he's in front of the moon. I mean, come on, that's yeah. sight and sound. It's just perfect. It's oh, harmony. so you're using both for one thing. Yeah, hey, that's fair. That's I got fair. to like. There's no other way. Yeah, I think. I mean, there is, but come on. It's too bumpy. We'll have to walk from here.
It is Sight and Sound, the movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> My sight, I'm not going to marry them, but that's a great pick for you. My sight is, it's the shot of, it's the shot of Elliot walking from his house to the shed. And it's that, sh- that was a very close second. The moon is I there. I love it's that. It's misty. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, so, it's so dreamy. It is and beautiful. Mysterious and lovely. That was a very close second. And then my favorite sound is this line from Drew Barrymore. Come on, come on, hurry up. Don't be pushy, pushy. I love it. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah, yeah she's just it's like that's how, that's how kids talk. It's like, how kids talk, yes. It's great. I know. I know, it's, she's so cute. Yeah, I do wonder how much was improvised because... It, it's hard to imagine someone sitting down and writing these lines unless they knew kids like really, really yeah. well. Yeah, I even love when Michael is, um, his back is turned and he's about to be exposed to oh, YouTube yeah. for the first time and he's doing a Yoda voice and you have absolute power. Like, it's so great. Yeah, I know. It's almost like, <laughs> there's almost like a Cassavetes vibe in here. <laughs> no, no, hear me out. In the way that people are, take. there's a lot of just like chatter, like especially that the introductory uh-huh. scene where they're uh-huh. playing D and D. Like there's a lot of overlapping chatter, almost yeah. like an Altman film, yeah. and it's like, oh yeah, it's just like, and it's all really natural, and it's mm-hmm. all this like just really great characters. It's just yeah, I, yeah. And you know what's interesting? Actually, I feel like there's a lot of that Cassavetes vibe in Close Encounters, like the oh, yeah. yelling, yeah, the, when the um. Like when that night that he is like basically losing his mind and is in the uh, shower and his wife is trying to get him out of there and they're screaming at each other. And then the kids come in and they're screaming and it, it is. It, yeah. Yeah. Honestly. I mean, different movie, but no, it's, the same. it's just interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, Spielberg is so great at those like family scenes, mm-hmm. like a, a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there is actually no one who did that better than Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. Jaws. Yeah. Charles has that really cute moment where the son is like imitating Making him. the faces. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Amazing. Yeah. Should we get into Pauline Kale? Let's do it. All right. I have bad news for you, Jackie. Really? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, well, I don't know. She's <laughs> wild. She could go anyway. She's a wild card. So this is Pauline Kale's 1982 review of E.T., the extraterrestrial. Just a few snippets here because it is long. Um she says, Steven Spielberg's E.T., the extraterrestrial, envelops you in the way that his Close Encounters of the Third Kind did. It's a dream of a movie, a bliss out. This sci-fi fantasy has a healthy share of slapstick comedy, yet it's as pure as Carol Ballard's The Black Stallion. Aww. Like Ballard, Spielberg respects the conventions of children's stories, and because he does, he's able to create the atmosphere for a mythic experience. Um, she goes on to say... If the film seems a continuation of Close Encounters, that's partly because it has the sensibility we we came to know in that picture, and partly because E.T. himself is like a more corporeal version of the celestial visitors at the end of it. Designed by the same designer. Oh, Carlo Rambaldi? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Like Close Encounters, E.T. is bathed in warmth, and it seems to clear all the bad thoughts out of your head. It reminds you of the goofiest dreams you had as a kid and rehabilitates them. Spielberg is right there in his films. You can feel his presence and his love for surprises. This phenomenal master craftsman plays high-tech games, but his presence is youthful. It has a just-emerged quality. The Spielberg of Close Encounters was a singer with a supple, sweet voice. 
it couldn't be heard in his last film, the impersonal Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Oh, God. <laughs> and we may have been afraid that he'd lost it, but now he has it back. Aww. And he's singing more melodiously than we could have hoped for. He's like a boy soprano lilting with joy all three T. And then she just says at the very end here, she says, um, Spielberg has earned the tears that some people in the audience, and not just children, <laughs> shed. The tears are tokens of gratitude for the spell the picture has put on the audience. Yeah. Genuinely entrancing movies are almost as rare as extraterrestrial visitors. Wow. Good job. It's a nice rave from Polly. Yeah. Can you imagine this at Con? Yeah. Because it's a proper film. It is. Again, That's what I'm saying. It is a proper film. I know. I can't imagine not liking this movie. It's one of those movies where you can't imagine. Like a lot of movies. I'm like, yeah, I can appreciate if someone doesn't like it. But this one? Yeah. If you, if you take <laughs> the genre stuff out of this, you, you're left with a great, beautiful, intimate family drama. Yeah. So what's not to like? <laughs> Should we do Letterboxd? Yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's do letterbox. <laughs> let's read let's dig up the dregs, huh? Yeah, let's do it. I have one here. This is a five star rave, okay, but I really Yay. liked what they had to say. Finally saw it in the theater at ten thirty AM showtime, advertised as a family matinee. Was careful to sit next to a twenty something film couple to avoid being the single guy gently crying into his morning popcorn to feed <laughs> away from your restless children. <laughs> It's an opera from Dolby Speakers, undoubtedly the world's best film score, and is so genuine in its tenderness that it reminds me of that Steve Martin thought on trying to make the audience laugh whenever they felt it right, rather than at the end of a punchline, but with tears. Unsure whether my warm, incessant crying was therapeutic or indicative of a desperate need for therapy. <laughs> See, that was me, but watching it alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've seen this movie plenty of times alone. Alone, really? Yeah. No, I've never. It's such a... Yeah. Okay, well, I have a two-star review. This is easily my least favorite thing Spielberg has done. Had I seen it as a child, maybe I would have liked it more. In fact, I definitely would have liked it more. But seeing it now was grueling and felt like a chore to get through. Not a single interesting thing about this movie. E.T. was cute, question mark, but not like... But, like, not interesting somehow, question mark. Yeah, it's wholesome, but so was Paddington 2. So with all that being said, I should have just watched Paddington 2 again. Oh that brings up an interesting point, though. Like, if you didn't grow up with this movie... No, that's no excuse. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't again, think Paul so. Paul and Kale didn't grow up with the movie. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. I'm so excited to watch this movie with my kids. Can I just oh say my that? God, like, same. I can't wait. Same. Especially reading that Roger Ebert review. They I might hate it. <laughs> you think? <laughs> like, this movie's too sad. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Here's a half star review. So I'm going from a five star to a half star. Okay. I had to go to a psychologist because of this movie. <laughs> Biggest childhood trauma. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a trend in these for sure. Half a star. Made it 13 minutes before feeling an anxiety attack coming on, which is a new record for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is my last one. It's a two star. It says, not nearly enough E.T. hot takes around here. So here goes. Oh, no. As iconic as this film is, I was one of the few kids that completely hated it for being the emotional and manipulative drivel that it was. You can ask my mom after we left the theater. I clearly remember saying, don't ever take me to a family movie ever again. I hated this. Rewatched as an adult, and I feel justified in my original synopsis. 
<laughs> I didn't get hugged much as a kid. Oh, no. <laughs> well, now that we've More heard letterbox. from all the insightful letterbox people. <laughs> it was what I imagined. I, th- I Because it is, I think it's scary. I, I try to think of the right age to show your children this. I feel like seven is good. Um, I think even earlier you could do. How really? old is Drew Barrymore in the movie? Like six Small. or five? Maybe five. I'd say that's a fine age, I think. I know. Too no? scary. No. I don't. Mm. Again, it's good for kids to be scared. I think so too, but I don't <laughs> want to traumatize them like that letterbox review I just read and then they'll hate the movie. Mm. Anyway, now we are very excited to move on to the interview portion of this episode. And we will be talking to Robert McNaughton, who plays Michael in the film. Very exciting. Okay, now, swear it. The most excellent promise you can make. Swear as my only brother on our lives. Don't get so heavy, I swear. Okay, um, stand over there, and, um, you'd better take off your shoulder. What? You might scare him. And, um, close your eyes. Don't push it, Elliot. I'm not coming out there until your eyes are closed. Okay, they're closed. I'm just gonna kill you. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute... You have absolute power! Yes! All right. Well, yeah, we're happy to welcome Robert McNaughton to the podcast, who plays Michael in the film. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Hi, Robert. Guys. Hey. Hi. How Thanks are you? So much. Good. Yeah, I'm glad to be on. Well, we're so glad to have you on. We're so excited to ask you these questions, these enduring mysteries about the film, questions we've asked ourselves forever. And yeah, we're really excited to get into it. It's It's funny because it's like, I mean, apart from the, you know, Steven and some of the people that were there every day, I think I'm one of the better people to ask, but, and then Henry was, it's sort of vague, you know, cause he was 10 years old. So it's sort of like those memories you have from when you were 10 that, you know, you kind of, of remember course. them, but they're not, they're not real. But then sometimes he'll surprise me cause he'll have a real good memory of something that I don't remember. But yeah, for the most part, I have the clearest memory of, of the uh, kids. Yeah. And how old were you? I w- when we filmed, it was in uh, late eight, 1981, so I was 14. Wow. And Henry was 10, and I think Drew was 6. Wow. Going on 7. So, Robert, so, I know I know you're a big cinephile. We've talked briefly in, in the past about films, especially movies from the 70s, which is a, a gold mine of... <laughs> that's my favorite era. Yeah, movies. same here, same here. But so we're, we're there... So. Are there, first of all, what are your favorite movies? And growing up, what, what were the ones that made you take notice and, and want to get into all this craziness? Well, for sure, Close Encounters was, you know, because uh, I was 10 when it came out. I was 10 when Star Wars and, and Close Encounters both came out. And I forget which one came out first, but I, I know Star Wars, the day it came out, it was not, uh, the, you know, it wasn't sold out or anything like that. And I, I stayed in the theater and I watched it like twice or three times because nobody you know they weren't kicking anybody out close encounters i just remember being such a fan of it it was more of an artistic film to me more of like a you know an art film and sort of my introduction to that kind of film and um and i I remember my dad got me starlog magazine which was a magazine a science fiction magazine that they had back in the late 70s early 80s and it had like close encounters on the cover and I was so happy I hugged him, which was not rare. I mean, that was rare. That wasn't 
something I did often. <laughs> I went up and like was so happy. I gave him a hug because I was kind of, you know, yeah. already a Star Trek geek. But then, you know, then Close Encounters came along and Star Wars. And so so those movies really affected me. But I don't know. I saw some crazy films in the theater when I was that age, when I was in the 70s. I One of the first th- things I ever saw in a drive in was Enter the Dragon. Oh. My dad took me when I was like five or six to see it or the dragon uh, at the drive-in. Oh, I can only imagine. So, yeah. So I did. And then, and I was lucky because he would take me on trips to New York. So I would see some of the films that were, you know, the older films that were showing and he would take me to um, mm-hmm. the, the revival theaters. So I would see like rebel without a cause or giant or, you know, wow, some of the older films. So what was your, how did you first get into acting? Um, I did, I did plays and I, I was just doing plays in school, you know, at grade school and, and middle school. And, and, um, a friend of mine was sort of a little bit ahead of me and he was, he was going out and auditioning for community theater and dinner theater. And so I sort of, you know, thought that sounded neat. So I went along on the auditions and, mm-hmm. you know, and then I, I sort of snowballed cause I did, I started dinner theater. I started community theater and then I did dinner theater and then, uh, professional theater. And then, like I said, the work dried up in California. And then I got really got successful when I went to um, New York and I did mm-hmm. off Broadway. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, all the, all the casting directors and everybody in LA that wouldn't hire me, all of a sudden I was a New York actor. So then they would see me. I see. And we hear that you were drawn by Al Hirschfeld. Is that true? Yeah. I, I did one play that was that he, he saw several of the plays I did and I was so uh, disappointed because he he did draw the plays but just not me oh. so i did like a couple plays that he drew but he drew other people in the cast i see and uh yeah it's funny he was very he wouldn't necessarily draw the, the star of the show or you know he'd always like find some little scene that appealed to him and then he'd draw that so the, the play that i he drew me of as a play called tomorrow's monday that was like a play from the 40s that they revived and so I, you know, I was quite happy that he, you know, Hey, that's, incredible. it wasn't too bad. Yeah, no, that is really, really cool. Yeah. So, so tell us about when did you first hear about the, the audition process, the auditions for ET and what, what was that whole process like? Yeah, I just stumbled into it. That was really crazy because I was doing a play. I was doing that play off Broadway in New York and I was, it was actually the second run of it because it was really successful the first run. And then they brought it back for a second run. And they, they, a uh, casting director that was casting a movie, a horror movie called The Entity with Barbara Hershey. Oh, I love The Entity. <laughs> yeah. I, well, the, they wanted me to play. They, they, uh, I read for the part of her son in that, which she has a teenage son. And there's sort of this weird sexual dynamic with her and the teenage son. And I was, at the time, I was just barely 14. And so I, they, they said, well, you know, they, she, the casting director, Barbara Clayman, flew me from New York to LA. I didn't tell her I already lived in LA. I mean, I lived in Irvine, but they flew me out there and, and had me read for the entity. And then when it, they went a little older with the, the boy, the guy who played it uh, was like two years older. And so maybe a little less weird. Um, and so uh, then she was disappointed. So she said, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to come all this way. I hear that Spielberg's doing something that they haven't been able to find the right person for. And so she made a phone call and I was lucky because I got in on the late auditions, the late rounds, um, which I think helped me because 
they'd seen some of the same people over and over, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I got in like sort of a fresh face late in the audition process. And the same thing with Henry. He, he wasn't in any of the preliminary, uh, when, when he, when they were reading for Elliot, he wasn't one of the original actors they considered. And so we sort of benefit, uh, we benefited from that. Like I, I auditioned with just about every kid that was reading, reading for Elliot mm -hmm. and I never saw Henry, um, mm. come in. So I think they, they decided on him later. Very From my understanding, well, there's an audition that's online of him crying. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, but from my understanding, he had the part before he ever walked in that door because he was um, in a movie called Raggedy Man that was directed by Jack Fisk. And it was it was a nice little movie. And, and Henry was really good in it. He was uh, two years younger than E.T., so he was eight. And he was just really honest. He didn't have a huge role. But Stephen was editing um, Raiders. Right next to the right next to the editing room where Jack Fisk was editing um, uh, Raggedy Man, and Stephen, I guess they, they knew that he was looking for somebody, a ten year old or something, and and Jack Fisk came over to the editing room and said, "You got to see this kid." Mm. And wow. so he sort of already fell in love with them before. I mean, he he tells him on the audition, "Kid, you got the job," but yeah. I think it was you know was the way Stephen works. I think he already had. Because I, I was with all the other, nobody even came close to the performance that Henry gave. I mean, and none of the other actors that auditioned, you know, no, I mean, sorry. <laughs> no, of course it's not nobody hard to was, imagine. Nobody was that genuine and that, you know, sensitive and that, you know, the part is Henry. I mean, yeah. he just, and he's, and he's a great actor. He's, he's only gotten better since, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's just something too about coming in later in the audition process where it is a fresh face and they've seen because they want to see a bunch of people and then you're coming in later and you, it is like this spark mm -hmm. like, oh, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a rumor. Weird. Yeah, there's a rumor online that you auditioned eight times. Is that true? No, I, I stayed. <laughs> well, it's it, there's somewhat truth to it, but it wasn't it's not eight separate times. Because what happened was I went in the first time was just a meeting with Spielberg the day that President Reagan was shot. And that was just oh, like wow. an informal talk. So it was very stressful. I mean, everybody's rushing in and saying like, you know, James Brady just died and the president got shot and all this stuff. And and I was, you know, thrilled to meet him. And, you know, it was just very informal. He just asked me what I like to do. And I said, I ride bikes and I play Dungeons and Dragons. And I said all the right things. Yeah. So then the second audition was I went back in the casting with the casting directors and they had like this, they didn't have a script. They didn't show anybody the script, but they had like stuffed animal, this giant stuffed animal. And they said, just pretend that your brother is showing you the weirdest thing you've ever seen. And, you know, just react to that and just do improv. So I did that. So they had me stay and read with all the actors coming in to read for Elliot. So I, I did audition like eight or nine times, but it wasn't my audition. It was like, right, four right. Actors yeah. playing and which is always a good thing. Cause if you're helping them out, you know, it's, it's generally bodes well if they keep you, you know, to help read the other actors. And yeah. then the last one was an audition that not really an audition, but we played a game of dungeons and dragons at Melissa mm. Matheson's house. Wow. And How that fun. was the time she was living with Harrison Ford. So it was like, I got there early because I was driving up from Irvine. So I, I got wherever they lived, Coldwater Canyon, or I don't know, somewhere fancy. And I went up there and I got there early, which I thought was a good thing. But Harrison Ford answered the door in a towel. And he was, <laughs> he was pretty grumpy. 
he was not like happy oh, no. that this kid got here like half an hour before the you know the game was supposed to be and he didn't even know anything oh, about gosh. what was supposed to be going on it was just like it was them it was melissa kathy and, and um steven watching us play dungeons and dragons right and and you know and with not only with uh, the other kids reading for the parts. It was like everybody they basically cast, except not Henry, mm-hmm. and and then also with Harrison Ford's kids because wow. they were the they were the inspiration for uh, Elliot and Michael's characters. Right. They were the same age. Mm-hmm. Ben Ben and Willard are his two kids. Wow. So, so, what was it like meeting Spielberg for the first time? I, I was a lot. I was so nervous, and then the nervousness instantly vanished. Um, it's hard to explain. I've seen this happen so many times with so many people where, you know, you get all like, you know, what am I going to say? And you get stage struck, tongue tied or whatever. And then he is enthusiastic and he is, makes you feel very relaxed uh, right away. At least in my opinion, like I, I saw it happen with Brian. Brian was so excited to meet him. And then, and then pretty soon, you know, it went, we had to ask him, but I, I, I'm, you know, like right away, he, he's, he, whatever he's talking about, like sometimes you don't know what he's talking about. You know, like uh, with me, sometimes when he was directing me, he wanted me to do scenes like from Count of Monte Cristo, Cristo, from, <laughs> you know, which I had never seen, you know, and yeah. he's saying, like, you know, Richard Basehart or something, you know, I'm like, I don't, unfortunately, it's like, I don't know. I don't know that it's not a frame of reference I have, but he gets so excited about, you yeah. know, I, I know I saw that. I saw an interview with them where he's talking about when he was making ready player one and he was talking to the other actors about witness for the prosecution, about how exciting the opening scene was. And that, Oh was, yeah. You know, the, the, the long dolly camera mm-hmm. shot in the beginning and you know, they haven't seen one, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, but he, yeah. that's how he is. He's like, uh, he's like excitable about whatever it is he's excited about. Um, did you guys rehearse a lot? Cause a lot of it seemed, I, Greg and I were talking when we were doing the episode, which you did right before this. Um, and we were, we were wondering a lot of the moments feel improvised. They just feel so natural. So we were wondering how much did you guys rehearse? We, we, we did a week before filming started, which was sort of getting acquainted and also like, a little bit of rehearsal, but not a lot. Like just basically we did the, the, the two dinner table scenes, you know, cause they were kind of long scenes and um, you know, I would rehearse with Henry. Like we would run lines and stuff like we were hanging out together all the time. So I would run lines with him. We would do our scenes just together, just running lines. But a lot of the improv is sort of Steven kicking out ideas while he was filming. Okay. So, or he would allow us to throw in stuff that we, our ideas, mm-hmm. we would run it by Melissa or you would say like, oh, I want to do it. Like, uh, like it was, it was, uh, Henry's idea that I do the Yoda voice in the one scene. I was just going to ask about the Yoda voice. That was Henry's idea because, because, uh, at the time there was, uh, there was this, this radio show called Dr. Demento in California, I guess it was nationwide and he played novelty songs and, uh, one of the songs he played was this uh, takeoff of the song Lola by the Kinks. But oh, it was I love Weird that Al Yankovic and he sang Yoda. Oh, um, yes, yes, yes. Y-O-D-A, Yoda. Mm-hmm. I met him in a swamp down in Dagobah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Y-O-D-A, Yoda. And, and anyway, so I played, I had recorded it 
because it wasn't a record or anything. It was like he had sent it into the Dr. Demento and Dr. Demento just played it. And so I had it on a cassette tape and I, you know, played it over and over for Henry. And I was always doing the Yoda impression. So he, we got to that line and he says, that sounds like something Yoda would say. You should do it like Yoda. That's great. So, you know, and they, they were always open to ideas, especially like we'd run it by Melissa and she would take it to Steven and then, you know, they, they might modify the script a little bit. So everybody, everybody else knew. Was, was the film shot chronologically? It was when we got to the soundstage. It was, uh, but, but, but the, the, all the exteriors in the, um, all the exteriors in the neighborhood, like the bike chase and all the, the, the school scene and some of the scenes outside the house were all shot in the beginning. The first like two weeks was mm-hmm. exteriors. And then once we got in the soundstage, it really was shot, you know, where we said goodbye to ET, like Aww. not close to the last day of filming. Cause then there was a week after where we went up to the redwoods and we filmed the, the forest scenes. Oh, wait, where, yeah. wh- where in the redwoods was that? Was that just Northern? It, it was right on the border of Oregon. It was this t- little town called Crescent city, California. Oh yeah. And I've been there. Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, I couldn't tell you where, cause they drove us and I, you know, <laughs> people have tried to find the locations and that's something I can't help with. Cause I have all the call sheets from when we were in the, in the, in the soundstage, but I, for some reason I don't have any of the call sheets from when we were, uh, on location in Oregon. Cause they just, I mean, in, uh, Cal- mm-hmm. Northern California, they just drove us to the location. So, you know, that must we, have been we, were, fun. we kind of hold up in a motel there. Oh, sounds like a blast. It does actually. It, it was neat. It was neat. Cause we got away for a week and then the, and then the rap party was up there, which was uh... kind of neat. Cause it was like, kind of like, uh, just, just the family, just the, uh, the people, the crew and the people that were working on it had a sort of, I remember they they gave us uh, lobster. It was the first time I ever had lobster. Wow! Oh. And they had uh, like a big lobster dinner for all the crew at like kind of this outdoor tent thing. And Sounds lovely. It was kind of it was kind of neat being away from home, and it was kind of like uh, like Stephen. I remember one time he came by and he was bored, and that never happened. You know, back <laughs> at back at this, he was either in his office or or filming. You know, with us and. And like, he was just sort of kicking around the motel where we were all staying and Henry and I were playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, it was kind of sad because I was always the dungeon master and Henry was the only player, <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, so he was playing and then, and then Steven wanted to join in. Wow. So I rolled him a character and it was like a really basic level. The village <laughs> of Hamlet was like the most basic, the, the first thing you get when you buy the game is this, the first module is that. And, uh, so, you know, and then like, I remember he, like very early on, he got killed off. Like I had no control. I rolled the <laughs> dice and his character got killed by a giant snail. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, like <laughs> I killed oh. off the director, but then I'm, you know, to be honest, now I think about it, he was like happy to, you know, to leave a good excuse. Yeah, exactly. Like he, 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 he made the effort. He played the game for a little bit, but he was happy to get out of there. Well, that's really sweet, actually. That that's a very sweet story. How, in terms of getting performances out of you guys, like, did you have like a special acting coach for children? Like, how hands on was Stephen? What was that process like? Stephen, um, generally with with scenes, with scenes with us, he wasn't necessarily very hands on. He would just throw out ideas. With 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 especially with Henry's scenes where he's with with ET. Stephen would play E.T. 
Ah. And then, and also it's got like, there were the long scenes, the, the scenes where he's saying goodbye and stuff like that. Steven would talk through, through the scene. And, you know, he, he was not only the voice of ET, but he was also like, he would be more hands-on in those instances when it was, you know, the sort of the longer, the longer scenes with Henry and, and ET, he wouldn't tell him what to do. He never had to give Henry, he never had to give him you know, direction or tell him how to say a line or anything like that. But he would just say, now, you know, this is the part, you know, this is the part when it really hits you, what's, you know, that you're going to lose him. And this is the part when, you know, and he would be like that, but he would talk in the takes. He would talk in the takes. Sometimes he'd say, Drew, you know, hold your fork lower, or, you mm-hmm. know, just, just for continuity or whatever. Right. Um, and he was the voice of ET. In fact, when the movie came out, uh, both Henry and Drew, when they saw the movie, they still heard Stephen's voice as E.T. Uh, because they were just it was just so ingrained in them of him reading E.T. That's great. That was that was another question we had, actually, was who who voiced him on set. So that's incredible. They were unsure. I think they were unsure of who was going to do the voice. And then I think they had several ideas. And then it, it was like, I think at one point, Deborah Winger was it was going to do it. Yeah, yeah, like we had, read about that. He had to re- read every line, and but I think what happened—I don't know, because I don't know—but I think what happened was the between, or when we filmed it and when it came out, I think uh, Officer and Gentleman came out, and they uh, said, "There's no way everybody's <laughs> know her. Everybody's gonna know her voice. Too funny. Her voice is too recognizable, and yeah, yeah. Like her voice. I think that's what happened. I don't know. No, nobody ever said anything. And uh, wow. we ran into. I only met the woman that did the voice once. We went to. Um, they Pat had Welsh. a premiere. Mm-hmm. In London, it came out in London six months after it came out in, in the U.S. And so they had a royal premiere with uh, Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And and this woman came up to us at the party, me and Henry and Drew, and she just started talking to us. And it was the voice. It was she talked like that. Wow. And she said, hi, I'm Pat like that. And Pat Welsh. And, and she died shortly after that. She died like the next year. Oh, my goodness. So. What was it like meeting Princess Diana and Prince Charles? <laughs> that was really special. It was really nice. It was it was really nerve wracking that the, 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 they had a formal lineup, and it was the first time I ever shaved in my life. <laughs> and I, I was there with my grandma. My grandma was British, and so I, you know I brought her to the premiere, and 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 so I was she couldn't help me shave, you know. And so I was trying to shave, and then I cut myself, and then I get there and. And I'm stand. We were standing at the very end of the line. It was like Stephen, me, Henry, and then Drew was at the very end. And so I was like standing there, all like you know, nervous and everything. And and Stephen said, "You're slouching. Stand up straight. You're slouching." <laughs> and, and then I said, "I'm nervous." And he goes, "Well, he goes, just look at Harrison, because Harrison was there with Melissa, who was like about five people down the line." And he said, "Just look at Harrison. He's done this like five times already. Just do whatever he does." So, so when it came time, I, I don't even remember like shaking their hands or anything, wow. but then it was really neat because afterwards, um, when the credits were still rolling, they brought us, they hustled us out of the theater and we didn't know this was going to happen, but they said the, uh, prince and princess would like to have a private word with you. And so they brought us to like this little area in the theater and sh- she had to sneak out cause she had to fix her makeup cause she was crying. So we had a nice little informal meeting 
where I got to chat with Prince Charles and I, I didn't really talk to her much, but she was, she was like just gushing and she was, oh my goodness. you know, she was really, you know, Drew was so cute and she was like, just, you know, gushing over Drew and everything. But Charles was like really charming and really nice with me. He was saying, well, mm. I actually laughed so much. I cried. And I was <laughs> like, I have chills right now. Just hearing. Yeah, it was Princess nice. Diana. Wow. That, that photo nice. of, of all of you guys meeting them too is so iconic too. I feel she, like she had just had a baby the week before and all of the British tabloids were going on about how she was uh, anorexic because she was so skinny and everything. I was like, at that time I had never met a more beautiful woman. (laughs) She just just radiant, I guess is the word. Now I I just, at the time was just awestruck. That's incredible. Mm. Well, going, going back briefly to the ET production, when, do you remember the first time that you saw the ET figure? It was the scene where I first see him in the movie. That was another rumor I read online. I wanted to ask That's you true. about that. That's what, yeah. And wow. Henry, Henry was so good because they they swore him to secrecy because he had already been filming with it for, you know, all the scene. It was chronological. He was filming all those scenes that happened before he shows right. them to me. So I was like grilling him. What is it? Because all I had seen, and this was really sad, was all I saw was the thing in the basket, which to me was not, I saw that and I go, uh Oh, like, is this what it's going to be? This, this like rubbery, it was looked so fake. And Oh my God, it was just the face wrapped with blankets. So you couldn't see anything around it. And it, it, you know, I, I was like, Oh no, we're going to have to act with this like rubber doll. Like it's going to be, but Henry, Henry was like, he wouldn't tell me what it looked like exactly, but he just said it would look real and it looked alive. Wow. So when I so saw that's your it genuine reaction, time, yeah, it's the, and it what everything, everything you saw that it did, I saw wow. So everything. There's nothing that was added later, no effects added post-production that everything it could do, the, the head moving up and mm-hmm, the eyes, mm-hmm. the eyes dilating and the, the, the different 87 different movements in his face, you know, all that they could bring him to life. Was that also Drew's first reaction? She, well, she thought it was real. She really oh thought she thought that they would actually make him come to life. They would actually make him come to life in between scenes and she would mm-hmm. go over and talk to it and they wouldn't talk, but they would have it react to what she was saying and like nod its head and stuff. Uh, Steven would like nudge the, 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 there was like five guys that worked it like a bunch of puppeteers wow. and they were in another room. But he would see Drew talking, talking away, and and then he would like nudge him, and they'd go and like make it react to her. Oh, so. that is so sweet. Uh, hoping you can clear something. So when we were doing the first part of our episode, we wondered in Elliot's room, he's in a bunk bed, and the dog <laughs> Harvey is on the bottom bunk. Is that Michael's bunk, or is that bunk for the dog? No, I had my own room. I oh. think I knew it. I knew yeah. it. Yeah, I had my own room that they don't show in the movie. Um, I, there was no scenes filmed in there. But there was like a separate room in the house. It's funny because we never filmed in the actual house. The only scene we filmed in the actual house was in the garage. Mm -hmm. Scene in the garage where we're going through our dad's things. Uh, But but um, and I think I think Dee filmed a scene where she's coming down the stairs in the actual house. But but they modeled the inside on the soundstage at exactly like the original house. So down the hallway, there's there's the bathroom. There's uh, the mother's room, which they did film in, they filmed the scene that they cut out where mm-hmm. E.T. goes and puts a, a Reese's pieces on her pillow. Um, 
but they did not ever film any scenes in what was split. They never even built my room. My room was I down see. the hall. No, because we had a theory because I said, oh, it's so sweet. You know, you can tell Elliot loves animals and creatures and he's so lonely. See how his dog is sleeping on the bottom bunk. And then Greg thought like, oh, no, that's just Michael's bed. And you know what? Like, it could have been that. So. It could have been my bed. I outgrew because you know, <laughs> Maybe. I, I was, you know, 10 when he was six or, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, like it could have been, we had bunk beds and then I outgrew it. I, that, yeah. Nobody's ever asked that. That's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked about that. Oh, um, I really love observant. dogs. So. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that, that is that is interesting though. I'll have to ask, I'm going to bring it up next time we do something. I'm going to ask Henry about it. Cause please do. That would be yeah. great. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to see him. I think I'm going to see him in two weeks. Oh, wow. So, um, what happened for the 40th anniversary? Was there any celebration or? They did. They did a screening. They did like an IMAX screening at, uh, at the Grauman's Chinese. Oh, and wow. they had a restored IMAX version of the film, which they're going to show in IMAX theaters, I think, in August or September Very of fun. this year. They're going to show just a limited. They're going to show Jaws and the E.T. IMAX. The E.T. IMAX looks amazing. Like, oh, it's I'm sure. uh, the only thing that I noticed about it. The only single flaw is that for the first time seeing the film, I could see the matte paintings, like when they show the whole ah. panorama, the vista of, you know, like the LA mm-hmm. laid out. Well, I guess it's supposed to be LA that when he's on the hill and you see all the lights. Yes. So the, at the mat, the IMAX is so good. The 4K on the IMAX is so good. I can see the, um, you know, the strokes, the brush strokes on the matte mm. painting. And that, you know, I've never noticed that before, but. Wow. It's still, yes. in my opinion, at least it still beats CG. I mean, I'm not like, Definitely. you know, bemoaning CGI. I think it's it's still an important tool, but there's something to be said for the the artisan, the artisanry of just like physical handwork. That's just yeah. like really yeah. beautiful. And yeah, the CGI for ET when they did the re-release was horrible. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, mean, I remember. I, I I don't even think I ever good. saw that version, but I used to watch <laughs> I used to watch The Grinch a lot. And there was always a trailer before The Grinch started about this re-release of E.T. And I would always see the CGI E.T. and it freaked me out. It yeah. really scared me. But I, I liked E.T. So it was I, I remember that. I don't think I've ever seen it, but I remember it, to me it did a disservice. And it's not it's yeah. just because the technology wasn't there yet, like for for yeah. everything that they could do now. It just wasn't there yet for for what you know, and there were scenes. The scene that they put it back in that they, for whatever reason they they never had in the original film was a good scene. It was a scene with Henry and 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 ET's in the bathtub, and but the CGI ET just looked so fake, mm-hmm. um, you know that they they I think they went back and went with the original version just because mm-hmm. people were more happy with that. Yeah. And tell us really quick about the bicycle scene. How about uh, how was that like? How was shooting that like? It, um, we really didn't do much on the bicycles. I, I did, uh, I did the scenes where I'm looking for him out in the forest. I did the scenes where I'm going down the driveway looking for him, but then the, everything else, all the stunts were BMX bikers, um, the big chase scenes. And then when we were on the bikes, when they're flying, we weren't even on bikes. We were on, like, we went to ILM, uh, uh, industrial light and magic in Marin County. And we were just on like, uh, stools or something and holding our arms out like we were on bikes and they mm-hmm. had they had a mat they had a blue screen behind us or a green screen and then they had um these tiny trees these like redwood trees that were miniature redwood trees on tracks and they just sort of pulled them back behind us like they were like we were whooshing through the trees mm-hmm. 
And really, that's all we did. I mean, the, everything else was either models they had, you know, or the uh, the stunt writers. Wow. Well, it looks great. It, it still <laughs> it absolutely holds up. It looks timeless, honestly. I, yeah. I can't get over, though, because it's, it's mainly because of the, I think, because your emotions are with the film. So you're going to overlook anything. But like I, I always it always gets me that nobody can tell that like Elliot is a foot taller. The guy <laughs> playing Elliot on the bike that when he's yeah. getting in the stunt is like a foot taller. His feet are hitting the ground. And, you know, that or, you know, the or E.T. fits in that basket. How did he, right. you know, right. he's like this tall, but how did he squish down into that basket? You know, he squished. But, I but know, nobody, yeah. you know, he has the audience at that point. He has you in the palm of his hand. He could do whatever he wants with you and Definitely. you'll overlook it. It's like Wizard of Oz. You'll overlook, you know, you're entranced by the music and by the story and by the actors. And you're, you're going to you're going to forget that it's just like fake trees almost blowing over, or, you know. Yeah, it's funny. We were just in the first part of the episode, we were talking about how Spielberg cuts on emotion rather than logic a lot of the time and how it because you are swept up in it, it absolutely works. And you do overlook some of that stuff. Again, if you've seen the movie like a bunch of times, you know, you start to pick up on stuff, but it's it, it so works in the moment. And and I the music, it, especially too. the music, one of the all time great movie scores. Of course, I just I just rewatched uh, The Firm and I, I never noticed that the music is entirely piano in that movie and it's just such a great soundtrack and that's that's one of my favorite movies that i think holds up who did the, who did the music for that i forget i i don't know I and mean, that's what i got to find out i'm not sure if it was right Ry, right does guitar though i it's just a real nice like sort of sort of a memphis style blues piano throughout and there's no other in, uh, or, orchestral music there's there's popular music at one point but there's no other it's just really impressive oh i love it. yeah there's something to be said for just the minimal one instrument score. Like you think of the, the Neil Young score for dead man, or like you're saying, yeah. Ry Cooter for Paris, Texas or something. Ry Cooter. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. as uh, the guy from Radiohead, Johnny Greenwood is great. Oh my God. Oh, he's yeah. He's one of my fantastic. At the moment. I'm a huge, huge uh, Paul Thomas Anderson fan. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, Me so too. Now uh, I was already, but uh, since boogie nights, but uh oh. Then, then he he complimented us on ET. So he said I was a special sauce or something. He said oh. he said the three kids were the special sauce of ET. I'm like, oh. and mentioned us by name. So I'm like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> it's and it's like, really true too. I like him a lot. So <laughs> I like him more now. You you guys are the most. I mean, again, child actors. Again, yes, there's a a whole range. Like there are good child actors. I feel like that's few and far between. There's a lot that are like pretty good, and then there are some not good ones. But the fact. You, Drew, and Henry are all so special in this movie. And absolutely, you guys carry the movie. It's yes. the heart of the film. And uh, I mean, it's just what what was it like? What was it like filming the the goodbye scene where you guys say goodbye to ET? That was that was rough because we'd already filmed the hospital scenes, which was really rough. And then and then knowing that when we were filming those scenes, we were basically knowing that we had like a week left of filming. So it wasn't just goodbye to ET. It was goodbye to, uh, you know, Henry. It was goodbye to, I had no idea that, you know, we'd still be hanging out 40 years later <laughs> <laughs> in like Germany and stuff. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, I thought, you know, cause that's what happens with you do a movie or you do a play and that you see the people and you're really close with them and then you don't see them again. Yeah. And you yeah. had no idea while you guys were making it, how big it would be. Did you have some idea or I did not. I had no idea. I sincerely, I saw like the screening. I saw, well, I saw a rough cut with no music 
And I just was really proud of it. I thought it was really nice, a nice, intimate piece of work. Like I thought it was really solid and really good, you know, and true. And then I had no idea it was going to be a thrilling blockbuster. I saw Poltergeist, come, uh, they had a screening because it came out shortly before E.T. And I saw a screening of Poltergeist with a, like a, a guest, a test audience, where I just said, this is going to be the biggest hit of all time. I just wow. said, this, this movie's going to be like, I mean, I, you know, but then I saw E.T. with the music and I, I thought, oh, I was thrilled. I thought yeah. this is special, but I still didn't think that it was going to be like, oh, you know, past Star Wars or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I know there's a rumor of Spielberg because I think E.T. and Poltergeist were in production at the same time or they kind of overlapped. But I know there's a rumor of Spielberg running back and forth between the two sets. Do you remember any of that? Like, was he coming back he- and talking about Poltergeist at all? No, he, they had wrapped before us, but I'm pretty sure he directed it, but I'm no one to know. I don't know, but I can just see from looking at the movie, which parts I think are his. And, and also he did tell me he was, he did the scene where the guy's peeling off his face. Those are Steven's hands. Yes. He was was real into horror when he was, uh, when he was growing up in Arizona he used to tell me that he would go to like Phantom of the, uh, not Phantom of the Opera, uh, the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon and movies like that. And like, he'd have like a big bag of fake vomit and he'd sit in the balcony and like pretend to be throwing up and pour <laughs> oh it the people gosh. below at, at this like old time movie. Cause we were talking about this old time movie theater in Phoenix. Cause my, my grandparents lived there. And, and so I was familiar with it. And that's amazing. So yeah. I, he was I a big, see. and he did a horror film that no one saw. I've, I've seen it, but it's like, it was a TV horror film. It was pre-Jaws, right? Pre-Jaws, post-Duel. And so that's worth trying to track down if you can find it. It's a really creepy horror film. It's like a, it's like a haunted house film. Oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I know he started yeah. his career on the Night Gallery. Yep. And it, but it was, it, was a, it was a neat, uh, like a twist episode with Joan Crawford. Yeah. And it was like, that was, yeah, he, that was his first directing job. It, it's so funny because as a kid, because Poltergeist strangely was rated PG. I, I think they might have reverted. It might be R now, but at least when I was growing up, it was PG. So I sure saw it as a, as a kid. And that scene where he tears his face off was the most traumatic thing I'd seen. And later when I found out <laughs> that those were Spielberg's hands, I felt betrayed, but also comforted. I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, but, no, he was real into that. I mean, it was like, you know, that that was his crack at a horror film. That's a, so. yeah, it's a damn good one, too. Um so do you so okay et comes out et is this huge success at the time it's the highest grossing movie ever so what what did yeah what did it feel like just in the the post et world like it's it's out it's this huge success what did what was that like it was kind of crazy uh well because i wasn't around i was doing a movie another movie in in vermont called i am the cheese filming that the summer that et came out oh got you yeah i wanted to talk to you about that so I was like, kind of like away from the the hype, and like I did see it in a in a theater in Vermont, in Barrie, Vermont, which is like a really small town. I saw it, you know, not opening weekend or anything, but like somewhere along the way, I saw it, and the theater wasn't even full or anything. It was just like a little theater, and that halfway through, this like guy looked at me. He was with his son, and he said, "You're the guy in the movie. What are you doing in Barrie, Vermont?" <laughs> He's like, "What the hell are you doing in Barrie, Vermont?" I'm like. I'm filming another movie. it's like uh you know but it, it was kind of a it was i was not exposed to it, the initial hype but then when i went back to high school it was kind of crazy oh i'm the, sure i started 
uh, I started high school that September. So it was a little bit nuts. Right. I can only imagine. Yeah. I want to I ask you about I Am The Cheese. I saw that this week. Uh, it's kind of hard to find, but I saw there was a, someone has uploaded on YouTube. I watched. Yeah. It it's on. I always tell people just find it on YouTube. That's you the know, easiest way. You know, it's funny though. It ends with, have you the end credits song? Someone put the Rick Astley song and they're never going to give you up. I was like, I'm pretty sure. No, that's not, that's not the original song. <laughs> it was, I, um, I really enjoyed the film and honestly, such a great showcase for you and your talents. And I think, you know, I got in trouble for that film. Did you? I mean, in that during the filming, there's a scene where I walk in and there's like a piano. I'm walking into the, the Cynthia Nixon plays my girlfriend in it and I'm walking into her house. And there's a piano and I just snuck it in. But I played the the, the, the four bars from uh, Close Encounters on the piano oh. <laughs> and nobody knew. And then they got to the sound editing. <laughs> the director's like, why did you do that? <laughs> He's like, we that that cost more than the budget of the movie. Oh my the, the, the entire budget of the movie we would have to spend in order to just include that in the movie. I, I didn't know. I thought, you know, I thought just four bars. Nobody's yeah. saying <laughs> that's, that's so funny. I, I, the movie has a real, I don't know if you've seen the Sydney Lumet uh, film running on empty with river Phoenix. And, I never uh, did, but yeah, you know what? Judd Hirsch is in that, right? Yeah. And it has a, it kind of, ha- it reminded, I'm the cheese reminded me of uh, running. I, I am cheese came first, but I know it's based on a kind of a beloved novel too, but you really carry that movie and they got you on another bike in the movie too. <laughs> yeah. After yeah. that, I said, that's it. No more bikes. No that's more it. bikes. It's a really, I have, yeah. I haven't, I've stayed off bikes ever since then. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a really yeah, nice just... little movie. It has nice, like, you know, it's it's dramatic and it's kind of somber and it's just a really I mean, I love those kinds of movies. It's intensely character focused and it's low key and it's just quiet. It's really lovely. It's thank you. That's it, it was it was hard to it was hard for audiences to understand, I think, partly. And then they added narration and that didn't make it any better. You know, it's like. So I'm glad that the movie, the version of the movie that stands now has no narration and, you know sort of like Blade Runner where they, they put the narration in and then they decided it's better without it. Absolutely. Well, how do you, so first of all, I guess, cause you have, you have kids. Did did you show them ET when they were growing up or was it like not a thing that was even. Well, my oldest is 25 now, uh, Noah and he's in Arizona, but, uh, he, he, I held off on showing it to him, uh, you know, cause he was like, five, six, and little kids would get scared when they see the movie for the first time. Yeah. And so, and then it kind of worked out where the first time he saw the film was in at the 20th anniversary when they had the the live orchestra and everything. Wow. So that was nice. It was like, I took him to see the film for the first time and it was a, you know, in a big movie theater with uh, John Williams was conducting the orchestra. That's incredible. Kind of crazy. Wow. So then my other kids, uh, I have uh, three stepsons. And they've, they've all seen the movie. One, one is like, he doesn't like to see people he knows in movies, including his mom. Um, my mm-hmm. wife. Yeah. You, my <laughs> wife, uh, Bianca Hunter is an actress as well. And she's, she was in like the fighter and bad Lieutenant mm-hmm. and, um, a movie I love called trees lounge that, Oh, the Steve Buscemi movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's in that, mm-hmm. which is weird because it's like, I, I actually went on a date with her back in the eighties. I went on a blind date set up by um, set up by Drew Barrymore's mom. <laughs> Drew was close with my wife with B when she was 14, 15. And Drew was about 10. 
And uh, but she had a crush on me from the movie. So she kept begging Drew's mom to set us up. And then finally, I came to New York when I was doing the Henry V when I was 18 and she was 16 or no, I I was probably 19 and she was 16. Anyway, so she she said, "Okay, I'll let you like finally, you know, you're old enough that I'll let you go on a date with them. So I took her I just took her on a date to the movie and put her, you know, put her in a cab. And then that was it. Like one blind date. And so then years later, I watched uh, Trees Lounge. And I kind of had a crush on the actress that was in the one scene in Trees Lounge where she's uh, there's a scene where they have a party. They Steve Buscemi and um, Mark Boone Jr. And they invite these two young girls back to their their house. And one of them is uh, Chloe Savigny. Mm-hmm. And one of them is my wife. And then my wife's like doing the twist and stuff. And I said, she's cute. I like her. And so, <laughs> but I had no idea it was the girl I'd actually taken out. Oh, my gosh. She was, she was like, you know, 10 years older. 15 years older and, and look completely different from the young girl I took out. And so then anyway, we reconnected back, you know, 20 years later. That's amazing. That's, that's a great meet cute. Yeah. That's, that's a, funny. that's a movie I recommend though. That's one of my favorite movies. Uh, Trees Lounge. Lounge. It's really good. Yeah. It's got Absolutely. great actors. It's got a great cast. I mean, you know, a lot of New York actors, Kevin Corrigan's in it and, you know, Carol Kane, um, just, that's just a great cast. Absolutely. So Robert, I mean, Greg and I kind of discussed this earlier. E.T. and so many other of Steven Spielberg's high concept movies, they're they're so special. And I think that it's interesting to look at them and maybe it's not right, but we can't help but compare them to like the blockbusters we have now. Probably not right to do so, but we just can't help it. Um, What do you think? What do you think like the 80s and 90s had that we just don't have now? I think. One of the things, and I like, I go, I take my, my other stepson Hunter, I have to take him to the first day every time there's a, a superhero movie, a Marvel movie. So I love him. But I think one of the things, and I, I heard this discussed somewhere else, and I think it's, it's valid, is that the big scenes, the big action scenes, the big uh, fight scenes, and the, they're, they're done by the same companies. They're done they're, they're the, 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 the science, the special effects, the, s- the sequences are done by the same company. So they all look the same. Mm-hmm. Like the one, the people who did Aquaman did, you know, did the same ones that did this and the same ones that did, you know, y- you know, all of them. So they all sort of blend. And, I and see. even, even with the star Wars films, it's like, they get the same big special they're worked on by like five different special effects companies. And, but at a, at a certain point, I think they're directing the film, you know, yeah. so that that there's they're they're more generic. Yeah, that's an I interesting. That's part, I, I to me, I fall asleep in those big scenes. <laughs> I fall asleep in the action scenes. I love this the, the more intimate scenes. What I love like about you know uh, the Avengers are the scenes with Robert Downey Jr. where he's telling him not to dump grounds coffee grounds in the sink and stuff. You know, the yeah. the human scenes. Yeah, all the character stuff. Yeah, the character stuff, and and it's like the other scenes just blend to me and they there's maybe it's just also I'm getting old and there's too much going on and sensory overload. But yeah, I think that's part of what's missing is that there's, it's like a kind of a, it has to be this formula and then they, and they make it that formula because the special effects companies are doing the same thing in every, they're taking over each, you know, each big action sequence. Yeah. Yeah, It is super repetitive. It's true. Yeah. There's something to be said, something like ET is so streamlined and focused and 
character centric. And I think that's why it works so well. It's just, and, from, I from mean, start to finish. He, yeah. He was just such a, you know, at that point he was just like, so he, you know, like not necessarily editing while he was filming, but I mean, he had, he had storyboards, just very basic storyboards, but he was just so efficient with, it came in under budget, you know, under time, but he knew what he wanted. He knew what the effect was that he wanted. So he didn't film like a hundred takes of something. It was like, you know, a, a, you know, one of his special takes and then like, you know, basic coverage and then, mm-hmm. you know, a couple close ups. but nothing like he didn't go overboard with, you know, he knew what he wanted and he knew how it would come out, how he could get it done. Yeah. Right. And he had a small budget it, for ET was 11 and a half million dollars, <laughs> which at that time, a big budget film, I think was 30 million or you know, something around there, but he had ET and poltergeist were both done for around $11 million. Wow. And, and for ET one and a half million dollars was the ET itself. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. He, it's all on screen too. And then some, I mean, it's a rare the music is really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me every time now that's like, uh, boy, Absolutely. it added so much to it. And it's like, I can't even imagine it without the music now. Yeah. Right. Well, Robert, we really appreciate your time. It's been it's Thanks. been real it's I been really delightful. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really fun talking to you guys. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. You know more a lot a, a lot more about movies than I do. So I, I just <laughs> oh, sort of I, don't, I, 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 don't skimmed, I skimmed the surface of it. No. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. No, but thank you. Yeah, this is really insightful and we appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, that was so, so fun. Yeah, what a sweetheart. He's great. Yeah, that was super insightful. He cleared some things up for us. That uh... It was uh, Mythbusters, but E.T. version. Mythbusters. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this week for our special E.T. episode. Next week, we are, hmm, Apocalypse Now, perhaps? Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 masterwork, Apocalypse Now. This is the theatrical version. It's not Redux and it's not the final cut. It is the theatrical version that we will be covering next week on Seen and Heard. Until then, I'm Greg. I'm Jackie. And I hope you all have a great week. Bye. This has been an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. Seen and Heard is Jacqueline Pastagian and Greg Kleinschmidt. Theme music by Andrew Cox. You can find us at seenandheardpod.com. <laughs>